So like half of Americans can't come up with $400 for like a car repair or if your water heater were to go out in your house or something like that. Like that is really difficult. And of uh, people making over $100,000 a year, that number is still 19%. So this is like a problem across income. Hi, welcome to the Stylist Free Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Leibowitz. Today we have Ben Vick with us, going to talk about health and wealth. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We've talked a couple times about the two areas that I'm really interested in, which are health and wealth, and I think that there's some interesting like parallels between them. I just think to kind of like tee up the conversation, talking a little bit about health, which is a space I've spent quite a bit of time in over the past few years. I was looking at a study a few years ago. It was done in 2013 and published in the Mayo Clinic's research journal, but it outlined four healthy habits of Americans. Exercise, like three or four 30-minute workouts, maybe an hour workout each week. A diet that is like slightly better than the average American in the top 40% of Americans. A reasonable body fat percentage, which is sort of like a derivative of the first two things, right? Like diet and exercise and not smoking. It's so like doing those things. Uh, this study said like these are what we think a healthy lifestyle is and we think that this leads to like really good like longevity like quality of life outcomes like if you were to guess like what percentage of americans have that type of diet 15 uh it's actually a bit lower three percent of americans less than three and i just thought that was like really interesting right like i've worked for like a lot of in a, in a consulting capacity i was in management consulting uh prior to coming to cornell tech but i've worked for a lot of the big healthcare companies and just understanding like how much of a problem this is like how much we struggle about healthcare and taking care of people and, and just thinking about like the, the basics right the foundational things eat some vegetables like have an apple every now and again really like get out for a walk, right? These are not like incredible heroic things that we're asking of people, but it's really hard for Americans. And I think we're specifically talking about kind of the populations. I refer to a lot of like US stats just because it's like the area that I've worked in mm -hmm. um, the most, but it's certainly a problem in other countries as well. Yeah, was sleep even on one of those four? Like just getting enough sleep per night? <laughs> yeah, that is, it's not even something that they like correlated with it was one of their strongest correlates right but that's certainly there's a ton of other things that you'd want to do to be healthy and then one of the other kind of areas that i've thought a lot about is wealth and, and really just uh, everything ranging from basic you know financial literacy and having enough kind of money to pay the bills and feel confident in that but then also you know, being able to grow wealth, being able to give that, you know, you a sense of security and retirement and things like that. There's like a ton of challenge in that area as well. 35% of all adults in the U.S. Uh, only have like a few hundred dollars saved and 34% have nothing. So like you figure like 70% of Americans don't save anything for retirement, right? Which is clearly going to be something that for you and me is going to be an issue, right? Because this is, if 70% of Americans aren't saving for retirement, we need to think about the broader societal implications of that, right? And that's going to be a huge problem in a generation years down the road. But it like gets worse, right? Which is like the crazy part. This is like, for me on the wealth side, this is the stat that really got my kind of brain like working through this is 46% of Americans, the Federal Reserve did the study, 46% of Americans said they didn't have enough money to cover a $400 emergency expense. So like half of Americans can't come up with $400 
for like a car repair or if your water heater were to go out in your house or something like that. Like that is really difficult. And of uh, people making over $100,000 a year, that number is still 19%. So this is like a problem across income gradients as well. Interesting. So even people making six figures, they're spending more than they they make basically as much as they make and they can't even afford emergency fund. You mentioned water heaters, stuff that like household repairs, but when you get into like health that we're saying, if you need a 400 to put $400 towards something, that's, if you don't, if you can't afford that, that's going to be much worse later on the line. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, everyone is aware of like how much healthcare can cost in the U S and especially an unplanned visit to the emergency room or something like that is just insanely financially crippling for someone that can't come up with $400 and needs to put it on a credit card or needs to you know, use like a payday loan or something like that. Like that obviously has knock-on effects in terms of their economic outlook for their like you know, family, for their personal ability to, to pay their bills down the road. And then the crazy kind of thing that when you think about these two things separately, they each seem like big issues. But they're actually correlated. The Journal of the American Medical Association, which is a pretty like, well-respected body that researches a lot of different subjects in healthcare, they did this study in, that found that it was a huge long-term study, like 1.4 billion Americans track. I mean, they're basically like summarizing a number of different economic data sets right, that um, our government agencies are collecting. But they found that like, the richest people in the U.S. live 10 to 15 years longer than the poorest people. Right. So these two things are like really like inextricably linked. Right. And so to me, it's like, how do we like what are the commonalities? What are the things that that make you know, these things together like interesting uh, to solve? And it's like a lot of uh, previous work that I did was working with companies in these sectors. Cool. So what do you see as those commonalities that link health and wealth together? Yeah, I think uh, they both share this challenge, which is that humans kind of suck at uncertain events in long-term planning. And so if you think about like a health event, we talked about like a emergency room visit or something like that, or something like long-term, like saving for retirement, it's really hard, I think intrinsically for people to prioritize and like the, you know, psychologists have shown this is really hard for people to do. And so both of these arenas are like very important to our like long-term uh, well-being, but they're very hard to prioritize on like a day-to-day, -day, like when you have the credit card out and you're trying to decide what to buy, at, you know, at the end of the week when you've gotten paid or whether you're not, you want to go out to dinner or something like that. These are very hard things in the moment to sort of rationalize uh, and make the, the decision that's going to make you like most kind of well-off in the long haul. I think overall, like, there's another interesting point, too. There's actually a, a, one of our own kind of Cornell professors up in Ithaca, uh, David Dunning. He's uh, done a lot of research into, uh, like, the cognitive psychology of how we tend to overestimate our abilities and our competence in areas. And so this is one area where I think you see people believing that, you know, if I don't save this month or I don't take care of my health this month, I'll exercise, you know, you, you hear it with diets a lot, you hear it with saving, it's, it's, it's the ability to kind of think about this as we're going to deal with it down the road, right? That's totally hard too. Yeah, I think a lot of issues stem from short-term gains while giving up long-term sustainability. Yeah. <laughs> definitely, 
health, like healthcare is so hard to navigate with insurance and hospitals and people are just trying to get the care that they need and it becomes very difficult and from a money perspective, unclear how much you pay for stuff. There's not really open market for doctors or procedures like that. That's very transparent of what's going on. And so yeah, managing either of those is very difficult. One of the cool concepts I'm in a, or just finished a behavioral economics class and it's all about like nudges, like Richard Taylor nudges, mm-hmm. which are basically little incentives in order to get people to act a certain way. And one of those is to get people to save more is just defaulting them automatically yeah. opted into like saving three or six percent of their income into retirement funds. And that alone, I forget the numbers on that, but a huge increase because people just the default for people and they don't have to change their planning indifferently, but they ended up end up saving a lot more money and their value of standard of living doesn't really go down or anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The quality of life doesn't decrease and they're putting that money away. And that, those are really the things that interest me as well. It's like, how can we simplify the system and how can we create those nudges, right? How can we use like behavioral economics to help people navigate this space that just seems like uniquely hard, right? Like it's, it's uniquely hard in a way that is not convincing someone to buy a new TV or tickets to a game or whatever, right? These are interesting problems on their own, but like the, the health and wealth space to me are these like critical things to our well-being that we like reliably screw up. And it's just so interesting that, you know, we as technologists have this opportunity, I think, to think about um, them. I think, too, like one of the other challenges is that these there's these big incumbent companies, right, that have dominated these sectors. They've they've acquired different companies. They've built their market presence over the years. But they aren't like like you mentioned that the hospital and healthcare space. No one would say that's like a great uh, experience. But the regulation of each of the industries, the financial industry and the healthcare arena, rightfully so and important, creates these huge barriers to entry for a startup company and makes it really hard to just get started, right? If you want to you know, start a, a company that is in the health tech space and you want to dispense drugs, the amount of paperwork that you have to go through is tremendous, right? And that's true if you want to do something in the healthcare sector as, uh, as well. It's independent of drugs. It's, you want to deliver care. It same applies for the financial services industry. That's interesting. Yeah, so I have some experience in the healthcare industry. Work for Epic Systems, doing electronic health records. So I work close with hospitals, and yeah, everything moves very slowly. It's kind of a bureaucratic nightmare. Technology is super ex- like fairly expensive, like yeah. a few million dollars to implement something. Yeah, hospital management. It's a difficult. Your technology working is very important, but. You also aren't necessarily a for-profit organization, so you don't necessarily always have the means to have the top-of-the-line technology. I worked for with a hospital who their servers were 12 years old, and they were scared to turn like restart them because they wouldn't be sure if they would turn back on. <laughs> Which when you're working with a hospital, that's super important <laughs> that your servers are at work, that your technology is working properly, and then yeah, FDA regulations. There's a lot of hoops to go through in order. Yeah, devices, medicine, pretty much anything in that industry to take off a lot of barriers. Yeah, I agreed. I think that's uh, when I think about like who's solving these problems or, you know, what are the different interesting ways that people are addressing them? Like the big incumbent companies, that definitely mirrors my own experience. Like 
whether it be the you know the large insurance companies and the healthcare side or the providers or the hospitals or like the big financial institutions like the Wells Fargo or Chase a lot of the effort that i've seen is is like very much like don't touch the back end it works it has been built you know in the like the 70s 80s even like it's crazy how old that technology can be you know certainly some of it is more modern but like it's amazing how how resilient some of that technology has been and how much longer it's stuck around than, than they've anticipated. And a lot of the effort seems like it's been just focusing on really front-end design, right? Of how can we leave the back-end alone, like it's too expensive or we don't know what's going to happen when we shut the servers down, right? So we don't want to change it. But how can we at least like window dress, basically? It seems like there's more that's coming out of the kind of incumbent large companies that are in the space. Like, um, Goldman Sachs just uh, launched Marcus, which is a new line of business, which is a personal loan business, which is very different than I think what you or I or many people would know Goldman Sachs for and took a lot of different infrastructure on their end. But I think it's signs like that that show that like there is incentives uh, in the market for these companies to start to you know build net new products that I think are good for consumers. Definitely, yeah. I hear more and more of these large banks or corporations having little teams that are, like you're saying, yeah. personal loans. I think a lot of these big banks are looking at blockchain technologies to for finance and stuff like that. So yeah, it's interesting to see they kind of have their own like little incubators within the company experimenting with these new technologies, which is great. Yeah, because a lot of it's old, not necessarily super secure. It's supposed <laughs> to be like it, yeah. it hits a lot of lines, but yeah, it makes it difficult also to work with sometimes yeah absolutely i think in like the health tech space i know that you had our friend kian on to talk about river care i think that's like the health tech companies are really interesting certainly it's a hot space and what we've seen in the vc community has sort of credentialized both fintech and health tech as opportunity areas another interesting space is, is this whole new class of competitors that are coming up right in terms of like kian's working on river care really trying to simplify the experience for caregivers. One thing that's like not even uh, a company, but I think is interesting is like a concept in the health arena. Have you heard of the journalist and author, uh, Michael Pollan? Uh, I don't think so. He wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma. I didn't know this, but he's actually a faculty at uh, UC Berkeley. Oh, cool. Um, and he has this, uh, this seven word diet, which is, I think, pretty interesting. But it's eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Now, I, I think we can like debate like human nutrition, like of course is like the, the keto diet and the paleo diet and all these different diets, right? And the Soylent diet. Um, but I think it's just interesting. Like, I think those are hard things to disagree with, right? Like when we talked earlier about the Mayo Clinic study, like one of the biggest uh, failure points for people was eating like over-processed food or processed food, right? There's, a, there's an entire category called over-processed, which I didn't even know existed. But it, like, that's a huge problem in the American diet is that we don't eat like real whole food. We eat like derivatives of food that has been mashed and created into something that is, you know, packaged and shipped thousands of miles for our delayed consumption, which is crazy. But like, and I guess, and I'm not going to try to argue farm to table as part of this podcast or anything. I just think it's interesting the way he was able to simplify, right? I think that if everyone had a set of rules to go by for things like their, their financial health or things like their physical health, and you had just a mantra like that, that you could create, 
it, I think it would be really compelling uh, for people's you know habit forming behaviors and things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. It's something to associate with. That makes it easy. Am I following a basic guideline? Yeah. Yeah, because like you're saying everyone's different. Obviously, that people react differently to different foods, and not there's no one diet for everyone. But you can. You know, like what's bad for everyone on those <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, general things that Twinkies are bad for you, or desserts <laughs> that aren't going to be great. Yeah, I think uh, when you look at simplifying, like the fintech space has been another area of a lot of growth. I, I know of, and a few of your previous podcast guests, you've talked a lot about blockchain. I've really enjoyed listening to those because it's a space that I don't know as much about, especially CryptoKitties, which I still don't understand even after listening to the podcast. But I think that there are some really interesting examples in fintech where you know, companies are, are simplifying for uh, huge swaths of the population. You look at like the underbanked uh, or unbanked segments, and like there are a ton of companies, both established like Walmart and Amazon, and like smaller, what I think we can still consider like a startup like PayPal just announced a partnership with MasterCard so that now your PayPal balance, you can link a MasterCard. A specific card to it and then you can use it to transact like at retail stores and that's like huge for people that do not have a bank right for you and me it's like a convenience but for people that don't have a regular bank that they go to and pay like huge fees to to cash checks like that that at least allows them like a lot more access to the you know financial realm of of products than they've had before and there's a lot a lot of companies that are continuing to invest in that space which i think is really cool yeah now all that's very interesting about how you kind of need to hit a threshold in order to use all these things that would be helpful to you because you don't hit that threshold already yeah and you can't borrow money unless you already have money sort of idea yeah and it's yeah it's like how do we get people into a good spot like good credit good like income or something that they can use these services or it's like you if you don't have enough money in the bank, you get charged fees, but like, oh, you have enough money, they, they waive those fees. Yeah. It's like, how are you supposed to build money in that sort <laughs> of system? Well, I think it's cool too. You look at like mobile payment in emerging markets, like in India and in China, like we had uh, Pony Ma come speak to us. You look at WeChat in China and how that is like almost impossible to, to transact without, right? And that has completely erased that barrier, right? There's no minimum balance. There's no minimum transaction amount or volume, you know, functionally. Uh, and that, I think, has proven to a lot of developed economies like the U.S. and companies that primarily do business in the developed world, that this is a huge, like, economic market to be tapped, not just a charitable thing to go after. Definitely. Yeah, I remember in high school, I had some friends working on, like, microloans in, I believe, India and Africa, and basically giving people small loans so they could start a business selling chickens or yeah. sewing clothes. And it really, if I remember right, like they, those people mostly paid back their loans. It was like not a bad <laughs> yeah. investment either. It was actually a money maker too. And also help these people get started on a business, kind of an entrepreneurial in the third world sort of thing. Yeah, I think, and that's like an interesting example of what is what could look a lot like government policy i think that's like another interesting area like we have in the u.s had a ton of discussion about healthcare policy over the last decade and, and financial policy too because of the uh financial collapse and, and reform but there's some pretty interesting i think concepts circul circulating around like universal basic income 
around like single payer healthcare. And I think these are sort of on the, you know, more traditionally liberal end of the spectrum. But I think that there's a lot to be to be gained and, and discussed, I think, from a conservative um, kind of agenda as well. Like simplifying government is very well aligned to the conservative agenda. And I think if you start to dig into all of these programs, I, I have more familiarity on the, the health side, but there are a tremendous number of government programs at the federal level, at the state level, and some cities even to manage the health of, of citizens of those uh, kind of respective um, constituencies. But there is a huge opportunity to streamline those. Maybe, I, I, I'm not, I'm not a, <laughs> a labor economist or anything, but I think there are some opportunities to like help people think about founding companies, help people think about um, increasingly like you know doing contract work. If you can solve for some of the complexities on the the financial side of making that easier when it comes to pay your tax bill and, and when it comes to getting health care so that you know that you, you're kind of covered in terms of your day-to-day life. I think that that op- you know, has the potential to open up a huge opportunity in, in the U.S. like productivity. Definitely. I think there's been interesting studies that show that if you give people kind of like a maybe the like basic income solves this problem, but if you give people basically shelter and food, right, like, <laughs> you let you take care of that for them, it gives them the opportunity to like not one they don't have to go out and steal stuff in order to eat and like have shelter and then they can just go to work now like yeah. they have the basic needs taken care of that they can focus on other things and then society wins because the people aren't stealing they're not like ruining public spaces or anything like that so you actually like, save money in the long yeah. run by putting a little bit of money up front and then people are more productive it's all around win-win yeah. in that situation but i think there's a lot of like oh if you're saying like liberal versus conservative and just like oh it's giving handouts <laughs> yeah. but it's like no we can think about this in like an economically sensible way that it works out for everyone right yeah it's, i think it's really interesting to me that a lot of this research has been pushed forward by economists who are not traditionally aligned with like a liberal ideology right this is very much a extremely practical view of how do you you know get the highest productivity of your uh, citizens at the lowest possible cost. And so I think, you know, hard to tell where that goes, but I think really interesting to, to continue to pay attention to. Yeah, and definitely, I know some Scandinavian countries, like, it's good that people are experimenting, so we can kind of lock down what works, what doesn't work, and, and see where it goes from there. Yeah. I think, like, the, the last space that is really compelling, we talked about some of the incumbent companies, we talked about the government, we talked about some of the uh, current startup companies that are in the space. But I think like if you are, you know, a new, newly kind of uh, in the workforce, if you're a graduating student, you know, I'm, I'm just about ready to head up to Ithaca tomorrow to walk across the stage and, and graduate. But I think there's like some pretty interesting reasons right now where like health and wealth are, are cool places to think about uh, starting a career. Mind if I pitch you those? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so I think uh, if you're like a designer, so my younger sister actually just graduated from undergrad uh, a couple of weeks ago. She's a graphic designer. And I, I think when I've looked at the efforts that have made, been made so far in the space, a lot of it has been focused on that like front end design. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're a designer, there's just so much to be done in this sector still. Like in the healthcare sector, certainly 
uh, if you talk to any physician, any patient, they will tell you in the, uh, the financial sector, definitely a ton of opportunity for different populations. But there's so many places where your talents are needed and like really appreciated. That's been like one of my biggest takeaways in my uh, previous job is, uh, is just it was incredibly valuable to have a designer in those conversations and thinking about how a user is going to interact with uh, what we were building and, and really being that voice in many ways. I, yeah, I totally agree. So when I worked for Epic, still a few years ago, but they had the best electronic healthcare software that I saw, but the user experience still wasn't great. Doctors get very frustrated with Epic. <laughs> like, yeah. I remember being like, having the idea of, oh, they should have a search bar in here. And I think before I left in end of 2014, or there was like a plan to have a search bar <laughs> into the app <laughs> to make it a little bit easier. And like the other, like all scripts, the other uh, applications, were just tables, like they didn't look good at all. So it's always been interesting where I think there's a lot of potential for startups to come in and like make great user experiences and do healthcare records better, but healthcare records cost so much and they've just spent millions of dollars implementing Epic that will they ever, people always default to like, oh, that will never work because they've already spent too much money and would never change over to it. Yeah. And given the bureaucracy of how <laughs> hospitals and healthcare works, I could definitely see that that happening yeah i think from like an engineering perspective too there's like some of those same challenges like so much of the technology that i've seen it sounds like you've seen as well has been built like by pretty much by like our parents generation right and it's like there's like this time right now that i think is yeah. unique in these sectors where they have not progressed iteratively there's like been these huge like leaps mm -hmm. uh and there's like this time i think for a changing of the guard where i think like engineering talent is, is really sought after and appreciated in these sectors. And I think there's, whether you're thinking about like going to work for like one of these big incumbent companies or doing something kind of yourself, I think especially if you're thinking of doing something yourself, like my anecdote from this is, uh, are you familiar with the ACH payments? The uh, automated clearinghouse? Yeah, that, I've used them before. You have to drop my memory, but. Right, yeah, so it's like when you, uh, if you have money in your PayPal and you want to put it back in your checking account and it says it's going to take like three to five business days. Um, so the consortium of banks that runs this system just recently approved a change to move it to single day payment, which is a big deal, right? Now I'm going to point out that that's still domestic transactions only. And for some reason, the system the system that manages this still only operates on business hours, banking hours. So it only processes the transactions from like 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, but still, like that's a huge change. And so if you think about like if you're like an engineer and that's sort of the bar that you're competing with, I think there is like a tremendous amount of, especially if you're thinking about starting your own thing, like there's a lot of space uh, and a lot of runway to be competitive. Yeah. And just thinking more about UX and how we're talking about healthcare and also finance. Like Bloomberg terminals, like <laughs> yeah. they're literally terminals like that are from, I, I think they've been some improvements recently, but I remember a few years ago when I've seen them, it's like you're just looking at a computer screen from the 80s sort yeah. of thing. It's like yeah. there haven't been much front end UX like, effort put into it. Maybe part of that is like, oh, people don't like things that change or they just go with that <laughs> theory really hard. But it's interesting to see that not even these things that are people pay hundreds of dollars for subscriptions like that they're not up to they don't look like a modern application mm -hmm. and yeah bloomberg like lots of great things coming from there and lots of engineers there lots of people there but it still seems old yeah <laughs>
Yeah, I think that like speaks to the the product manager segment as well. Like I think understanding all of those nuances and like why things are the way they've been, like whether you're in the financial industry or the healthcare vertical, it's like a place where your experience is really rewarded, which I think is pretty awesome. Yeah, I think uh, too, regardless of where you are in your career, what's kind of most important to you in terms of role, I think the cool thing about both of these industries is that you're doing work that matters. Uh, I think, you know, if we think about Facebook, there's a monumental amount of effort that goes into making sure that you and I, when we're surfing, spend an extra minute or two clicking something that uh, lets us be shown a few more ads, uh, which is uh, important, I suppose, in our in our life and our entertainment. But I think this is like a space where you can truly like make a difference in the work that you're doing. And for me, and I think for the many of the people that I've worked with, that's been like a huge motivator and uh, something that brings us to work every day. Yeah, I forget what the original quote is, but over time, it's like for right now, it's the greatest minds of our generation are working on ad revenue. Like, how do we maximize most ads? <laughs> yeah. It's I forget what it was before that, but there's always something that it doesn't really make sense that we're putting this much effort in yeah. when we could be doing other things, but it makes money. So that's that's where people gravitate toward. See, and there's some like, a lot of innovation and more startups coming out, so it's cool seeing people apply those sorts of ideas toward health and wealth and finance all together. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on, Ben, talking about health and wealth. Appreciate you coming over. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was a good time. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Eat, eat, eat food, not, not, not too much, mostly plants. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Eat, eat, eat food, not, not, not too much, mostly plants. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Eat, eat, eat food, not, not, not too much, mostly plants. And that's our show, ladies and germs. Thank you for tuning in to the Style is Free podcast. Remember to stay healthy and stay wealthy. Until next time, friends, I'm your host, Brett Leibowitz.